medicine, modern medicine, to consider homeopathy viable, you have to be reproducible. There's got to be scientific here. You are listening to podcast number 45 with Joette Calabrese at practicalhomeopathy.com. On these podcasts, Joette shares her wisdom on how to use homeopathy utilizing proven practical protocols. On today's podcast, Joette and I will have a conversation about her background in classical homeopathy and why she has moved to using the efficacious practical protocols. This is a great podcast to share with others who would like to know more about Joette and the practical protocols. Now let's get started. Welcome to the Practical Homeopathy Podcast. I am Kate and I'm here with Joette today to bring you another exciting podcast. So grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and let's learn together from Joette. Joette, I wanted to start off today by talking a little bit about that name, Practical Homeopathy. Some of your listeners may be wondering why the name change, why move from joettecalabrese.com to practicalhomeopathy.com. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, Joette Calabrese doesn't have any real meaning to it other than it's just me. But what's valuable about Practical Homeopathy is that it tells people exactly what we're doing, what I'm doing that I've made something very complex, homeopathy, and brought it down to a usable, fine-tuned level of medicine that folks can use themselves that makes it super practical. By practical, I mean I want someone to learn about it during the day and use it that night. Classical homeopathy uh, is more, much, much more complex. And so I've moved from classical homeopathy and have gone towards something that would make it easier for me to teach. It was very frustrating for me, not only while in practice as a classical homeopath, but I would teach homeopathy. I taught homeopathy for years in a local college, the first credit-bearing course in New York State on the subject of classical homeopathy. And I taught it in a local college in Amherst, New York, outside of Buffalo, New York. And I taught classical a great deal, but one of, the, one of my messages was, one of the main messages that I think most people came away with after taking these courses from me was that, well, kind of interesting, but I guess it's not for me because who's got 10 years to study all this and a lot of money studying and learning uh, medicine from scratch or homeopathic medicine from scratch. And so it was frustrating to me because I knew I was losing a lot of people who would otherwise be interested and be able to perhaps treat their families. And so I decided to figure out how I could make this most practical for myself and my family and for my students and clients. Joette, let's talk for just a minute about your background in homeopathy because I'd like your listeners to get to know you a little better. Now, you didn't ask me to say this, but I think it's important that your listeners know that you're an accredited homeopath with several degrees in homeopathy and have studied with many homeopaths from around the world. You're an author and a speaker. You've taught homeopathy to medical professionals. You've been on staff at several well-known, reputable international homeopathic schools, and you have been on radio and TV, and I'm probably missing some things, but if you go to practicalhomeopathy.com, which is Joette's website, you can click on the About tab, and you can find out more information about Joette if you'd like to know more. 
Well, probably most importantly of all the things that, that you didn't mention is that I was a mom. And that's where it all started for me. I had been sick myself for many years. In fact, most of my life I had severe allergies that came and went, came and went. And I suffered from them in many different forms, eczema as a child and lots of bronchial conditions, and then later uh, gastrointestinal condition, and then later asthma. And so even from the time I was a little girl, my mother was always searching for alternatives. Um, that was back, you know, I was born in 1952. So I spent a good deal of my life uh, dealing with these chronic conditions and also far too many acutes that were kind of sitting on top of the chronics. And so um, then when I decided to have children, when I got married, my husband and I decided we wanted children right away, and I did not want them to go through what I had gone through. I didn't want them to have the antibiotics and the steroids and all the tests and the allergy shots and all of the gunk that I was exposed to my entire life. I did not want them to be exposed to. And so I decided early on when I was pregnant with my first son that I would go to a conference. Actually, it was just a lecture given by a homeopath who was a medical doctor. And he was retired and he was traveling the country and teaching people about homeopathy. And I was about six months pregnant. And I remember sitting in this class um, and I was mesmerized. I had been studying naturopathy, not as a naturopath, but I'd been studying many naturopathic methods and um, had gone to chiropractors, been studying botanicals and essential oils. I, and I also wildcrafted my own um, botanicals and made tinctures, etc. for years. And I had heard of homeopathy, but I didn't really know what it was. And so for the first time ever, when I listened to this man, it seemed as though he spoke in my language. And he said that for every condition that a child can have, such as fever, otitis media, conjunctivitis, strep throat, eczema, uh, cradle cap, you name it, there's a homeopathic medicine that will correct it. And I'd heard something like that from the essential oil people, and I'd heard that something like that from the botanicals, and I'd heard things like that from the chiropractic, but it wasn't bearing out for me. It wasn't showing me that that was what was happening because I'd been using them for decades. And I was uh, not as impressed as I wanted to be. And so that very night, I bought a homeopathy kit and bought a book and decided I was going to study homeopathy and I was going to learn about it. And so uh, once I had my child, uh, it came into use immediately. I put it to service right away. I won't go into that story. There are a lot of stories, and I don't know if we, we would be on for hours talking about the stories and how homeopathy has corrected this or that and has saved my children and, and me and my husband and my parents and our dog and our chickens and our goats and our ducks. I mean, we could go on and on about how homeopathy is so efficacious. But uh, then I started to study uh, more rigorously, and we studied in a, in a group. I met with some friends. We met every Thursday night for four years, and we studied under a teacher who had been a homeopath, a lay homeopath from England, and she had come back to the U.S., and she came to my house and then other people's houses. We took turns, and we studied homeopathy. She assigned homework, and we learned. And as my interest grew, as I became more and more astute with this. It was always classical, by the way. That's all we learned was classical. Um, and I started to repertorize. I got myself a repertory. Then I got a second repertory. Then I got a third repertory. Then I bought Materia Medicas and I started studying earnestly. And in fact, my husband used to remark that 
there was never a time when I was seated that I didn't have either a child or a homeopathy book on my lap and sometimes both. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it went hand in hand with mothering. It was my, my right arm and my left arm was holding my baby, either nursing or feeding or taking care of my children. And so I could not, I don't know how I would have done this without. Um, in the beginning, I did use essential oils and herbs and supplements, etc., because I didn't know enough about homeopathy. And I was frightened by um, some information that I'd gotten in terms of, you know, proving if you use it too frequently and that kind of thing. But I didn't understand it well enough to, to understand that it's not as serious as people think it is. And it's really just a way of learning. So at any rate, then I w decided I was going to take the big leap and I went to study in Toronto and I studied there for five years. And um, I studied with teachers from all over the world. Some of them were medical doctors, some of them were lay practitioners, some of them were naturopaths. Most of them were, were medical doctors, especially if they came from outside of the U.S. And in doing so, I then sat for certain um, international exams and I won't go into them all, but I got my designation. Yeah, people can look at that on my website. So, and I was a dyed-in-the-wool classical homeopath. By the time I had my third son, I had been trained well enough, I felt, that I could start a practice, and I did. And in doing so, I was using only classical. And at the same time, even before that time, I started to teach homeopathy. And I was teaching so often that I was teaching every night at a different location. So Monday nights, I would teach in one part of Buffalo, New York, downtown. Another night, I would teach in one of the suburbs. Wednesday night, I would teach, you know, in the South Towns. Thursday night, I would be in a church. So every night was a different class. And I did this for years. And when I finished, I would teach six classes with one group. That class would finish. And then I would start in another segment of Western New York area, Black Rock, West, West Side, Tonawanda, Cheektowag. I was all over the place teaching these classes. And what I found fascinating is that everyone wanted to do what I wanted to do, treat their families. They wanted to know how to treat otitis media and conjunctivitis and eczema and, you know, the same things I wanted to know how to do. But in teaching classical, it was like teaching with one hand behind the back because you had to study so diligently to get to the classical modalities, to get to the point where you could have enough acum that you could actually cure someone. Sometimes you hit it, sometimes you didn't, and it was hard. What remedy? Now what potency? Okay, now what frequency? Okay, now when do we stop? It was an awful lot of uh, conditions that needed to be met in order for it all to be lined up like a perfect storm in order to get the remedies right. So I knew there had to be another way. And then also in my practice, I was using classical. And, and I also learned that when I was working with folks, I would use the constitutional remedy, which is strictly classical. And that is supposed to be given one dose one day. Sometimes in some homeopathic classical circles, they use it twice in a day, a split dose, or three times over a 24-hour period. They also called a split dose. But then you would have to stop, and you'd have to choose only one remedy. Well, how do you choose one remedy if someone has, let's say, eczema? Okay, that's not so hard, okay? But you were supposed to choose one remedy that encompassed everything. What if that person had eczema and then, then walked, you know, in the back and they were clipping bushes and they got stuck in the eye with a, with a branch? Now they had an eye injury. Okay, now what do you do? Use another remedy on top of that? Certainly you should. Okay, now they go back into the house and their eyes all a mess and they got this eczema and they're itching and now they trip over the doorstop and they fall and they hit their head. Okay, now what are you going to do? Pretend that didn't happen? Of course, you're going to give a remedy for a head injury. 
Okay, right. now they go, now they get in the house and the kids come home and they're all sniffling and they get the flu. And now the guy's got eczema, <laughs> an eye injury, a head injury, and the flu. Now on top of that, you know, that night he's up all night long because he's got prostatitis. And he's urinating all night long and he can't sleep. And now he's got anxiety. What are you supposed to do with that? Really? Can we really find one homeopathic medicine that's, that's going to cover all of that? Well, no, you can't. You have to parse it out. And so I found it very frustrating that I still had to live by the dogma. One remedy. So what I started to do was I started to cheat. <laughs> and what that means is that I would use the constitutional medicine, the main condition for the main, and then, of course, peripheral conditions as well. And right. then I would use a remedy that was specific to the miasm, which meant, generally speaking, it was a no-sode. That's another category. Then I would also give a cell salt, because you can always use a cell salt. <laughs> and then an acute would come along, and I'd have to give the acute. So that's four remedies. That's not classical. And then I would find that they would contact me and say it worked for the first couple of weeks, but I don't know. It's not working so well anymore. So I'd repeat it. And then I would repeat it every week. And after a while, I started to realize that I needed more than one constitutional, classically derived medicine. Some people might say, well, Joette, you didn't get the right remedy. Maybe not. But I'd been studying for many years and was in practice full time. It's, you know, when I was already in my 40s, at what point was I going to get it right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so maybe I'm dim-witted, but I, I was in school, also in Toronto, and I will add this on to it, is that in order to be in this school in homeopathy, you had to have been in practice for five years. And so everyone who came to this class, we were all studying under Dr. Ramakrishnan, who would come in from India. He was a medical doctor teaching and using homeopathy exclusively in India, and he would come and teach us. And there were doctors who were coming in to learn this we all learn, we're learning together. Uh, one was from Iran, and another one was from Ireland, another one from the Netherlands. Two of them were from Colombia, and another one was from, you know, they were from all over the world. Another from Israel and, and uh, Great Britain, uh, Canada, of course, because we were studying in Toronto, and of course, Americans. So we got to know each other. And right. I was not willing to admit, just like what you said, maybe I was dim-witted. Maybe I, I wasn't going to get this correct. Maybe I just was never suited to this in the first place, and that's why I wasn't getting the correct remedy. Now, I'm not telling you I didn't have any successes. I had successes, but they weren't fast enough. They weren't good enough for me. I wanted lots of success. I don't want 50%, 60% success. I want 90%. Right. What are people coming to me for otherwise? That's, that, that's, to me, that feels half-baked. So the first year, I would get to know these folks, and I never said anything. Then the <laughs> second year... <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of whispered to one of the people who I'd gotten to know pretty well. She was a, a homeopath from Holland, and she was probably in her 70s at that time. And I said, I just got to ask you, do you ever use, and I was whispering, do you ever use more than one remedy at a time? <laughs> she, she said all the time. Absolutely. I said, wait a minute. And then do you use, do you ever use protocols? where somebody says you should use it a specific way repetitively time and time again, and that's the potency you always use, or at least you start with that and you repeat it X number of times. She said, of course. 
I said, wait a minute, what do you mean, of course? All this time I'd been studying classical homeopathy, no one revealed that to me. So then I was emboldened. And so I was talking to other, then I asked the homeopath that was from Ireland, do you ever use more <laughs> than one medicine at a time? And she said, yes, of course. And then I asked the two doctors from Columbia, Yes. And I asked the psychiatrist from, I think he was from Pakistan. Do you? Yes. Then I asked Dr. Ramakrishnan. Yes. I said, wait a minute. Why is this <laughs> secret? Why are we not being told this? Why are we being told that we can only use one medicine? There's only one medicine that cleans the whole picture up. And if an acute comes along, you have to count on the constitutional and you can use an acute, but you must stop the constitutional and you can't repeat too frequently or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or you're going to cause approving. Why is this? And then as I got to know homeopathy better, I started to think a little differently. One thing I think is happening, and I do not want to be derogatory towards my own um, uh, profession, but I think that homeopaths are worried that if they teach people their secrets, that people will stop coming to them and instead they'll treat themselves. And I think that's very short-sighted because look around you folks, everybody's sick. There are so many sick people on this earth. If they don't have one thing, they've got another. It's very rare to see a perfectly healthy human being. Right. And so you will never be unbusy. <laughs> and the more you help others, the more, that's a closer step to heaven as far as I'm concerned. I don't mean to be silly here, but I really do believe that. I really believe that we're supposed to be giving this information away, these kind of protocols. So if a homeopath learns that a student or a client has a fatty uh, liver, for example, if that homeopath doesn't use chelidonium, shame on him or her. Of course, you're supposed to use chelidonium. You could also use lycopodium as a strong potential, but you must at least strongly consider chelidonium. What potency? Well, you could use a 200, you could use a 30, but it has been shown by the Banerjee's that repetitively using a 6X of chelidonium for a fatty liver or a tender liver or a disrupted liver, or et cetera, et cetera, where there's clear indications that the liver enzymes are too high, et cetera, that chelidonium six, twice a day after many weeks will correct that slowly but surely. The tender liver or the stool that looks off or whatever else is showing up, the, the, the liver enzymes when the person goes to their doctor and gets their testing starts to normalize. That is clear indicated, uh, reproducible, key word here. If you want medicine, modern medicine, consider homeopathy viable, you have to be reproducible. There's got to be scientific here. Right. What, what used to floor me was that when we took a case in Toronto, during those five years with one teacher and two more with another teacher, that if we all took the case, we all watched that person. We all observed that person. One person was asking the question. The person was sitting in front of the class of 300 people, um, and, and they would answer the questions. We all would come up with a different remedy. What? That's not medicine. How could you come up with a different remedy? It was all our perception. It was too subjective. That's not good medicine. We should all have come up with the same remedy. Now, it doesn't mean that 
if this remedy acts, that no other remedy can. But it does mean that you're at least on the same page and you're all studying in a fashion that is reproducible and that you can teach others and not just use yourself so that it doesn't become a coveted, quiet method that's esoteric. Instead, it's something for everyone to learn. Mm -hmm. Everyone should learn this. All families should have homeopathy in their home. All mothers should be a student in homeopathy. All grandmothers should know how to use homeopathy. All mothers should be teaching their children how to use homeopathy so that as they grow up, they have systems in place for when they reach college age and, and beyond and get married and have their own children. This should be part of everyday learning, just like a child should learn how to, how to uh, invest money and learn how to build a house and learn how to cook and learn how to garden. These are skills that everyone should have. This is important stuff. And so how can we do that if we keep homeopathy esoteric and too complex and too difficult and requiring that people buy very expensive programs or very expensive medical books? I mean, my medical books, I've spent probably, I'm going to say at least $50,000 on my homeopathy books. These are not lay people books. These are medical books that are used in homeopathic hospitals throughout the world. They're very expensive. So what I do is I get that information and distill it down so that it can be used by everyday people. That's what good medicine is. That's the way it should be. We don't want the paradigm of, oh, only I know. You don't bother your pretty little head. No, no, no. That's, that's an old paradigm. That's an allopathic paradigm. Right. It teaches people that teaches mothers that the pediatricians teach mothers that they don't know how to take care of their own right. children. Exactly. I hate it. And you're trying to enable mothers, you're trying to empower them to give them the skills that they need to be able to care for their children when they're not feeling well. Yes. I mean, I think my story is probably very similar to many of the people who listen to you. I went through all of the different natural health paradigms. I went food, I started with and herbs and essential oils. And then like you often say, I dated those other methods of healing, <laughs> but you well, married, married homeopathy. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's a long-term commitment here till death do us part. I'm not leaving. This is where I belong. There's no doubt about it. Yes. I think, I'm in love. <laughs> I think people who come to this feel the same way. I studied classical. I didn't go to school, but I started, got all the books I worked with a classical homeopath and it is so time consuming. You have a cold, um, you know, Joe, okay, just a minute. I'm, it's going to take me an hour and a half to sit down with all my books, ask you all these questions and try yes. to figure out yes. what to give you for that sore throat or whatever it is. And oh my goodness. I, yes. You have made it so simple. Well, listen, if this, if this method that I'm teaching is, was not efficacious, if it didn't act, if it didn't work, I'd be right back to classical, except that it worked better. It does, it works better. Because it not only, it takes the mystery out of homeopathy. Instead of saying, okay, I finally got the remedy, I've repertorized and I've read in my materia medica and I've studied it and I've overlapped and I've integrated and I've made sure that it's correct. Okay, now I've got it. Okay, now what potency? 
Okay. All right. Okay. Let me guess. Let me see. I've got, in fact, I've got a book on, I've got a couple of books on pathology. Which potency is the best potency to use for each remedy? And you know what it's all about? It's all the information that authors from the past, such as Kent and Boynenhausen and et cetera, et cetera, have all used in the past. What potency did they use for a specific remedy? Well, if you look up sulfur, they've all used it in a six, a 30, a 200, and one M. Okay. So which one is the one we use for today? And then you might look up phosphorus. Okay. Now, it shows Boynenhausen liked to use it in a 30. That was his favorite potency. But Kent liked phosphorus in a 1M. Okay, which one are you going to use? Right. How do you choose something like that? Right. So, especially if you don't have experience. And I had experience. I had been in practice for many years when I found this, when I realized this, I should say. So, now you've got a remedy. Now you've got a potency. Okay, you've made a decision on a potency, which is really, to be honest, a shot in the dark. Okay, pretty much. Now, how frequently? Show me, how often are we supposed to use it for? Nobody ever teaches that. That's called pathology. How often do you use it? Mm -hmm. So with these protocols, it's the whole picture. Give me the name of the condition. In 80% of the population, this remedy that I'm going to tell you about, in this potency, with this frequency, and for this length of time, has been shown to act. If you're not in that 80%, and most people when they're sick think that they're not, but they usually are, of course, because it's 80%. <laughs> in that remaining 15 to 20%, there's a second level. If the first method doesn't act, the first line, then you go to the second line because there are about 15% of the population does not respond to the first one. So we use the second line. And that second line is also protocol. It gives you the name of the remedy, the potency, and the frequency. If that still doesn't act and there is a third line, we go to the third line. If there's no third line, guess what we go to? Classical. We use it as a last resort, mm -hmm. not a primary. We don't start there. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't look at cases with a classical eye. I'm always looking at what the miasm can be. I'm always considering that. I'm always looking at is the summation of these medicines, could it be put together in a more tidy fashion so that I can use fewer medicines? I can use maybe just one. It's mm -hmm. pretty rare that I can use just one because our human sufferings are not um, single-minded. Right. It's not so neat. It's not that tidy little package. I wish it was like that. All the people that I worked with for all of those 10, 15 years of, of using classical homeopathy, full-time as a classical practitioner, full-time. I didn't dabble. I was not a dabble. I've never dabbled in anything. I've always gone whole hog all the way up to my eustachian tubes, my mother used to say. <laughs> I dive right in. And so I, I was, I was full-time doing this every day, six, five to six days a week. And so my experience was that it needed something faster. And then I would learn that other homeopaths had protocols. If a woman has had a baby and she's not feeling so well and she's fatigued, hello, anybody out there who studied anything about homeopathy, you should be thinking of sepia the moment I said woman just had baby. Doesn't mean it's the only one, but we at least need to start with that. And if you're not thinking that way already and you've already started to go into your your repertorizing program or cracking your repertory, you have not learned your organ remedies because there are specific organs for every organ in the body. There's a specific medicine that, that approaches it homeopathically. That is very important. If a man has pr prostatitis, you should be thinking of Thuya. It's not the only one. Mm -hmm. Could be metarinum. Could be cantharis. You know, but it's likely... Thuya. Could it be conium? Certainly. 
but think you, you have to memorize these. And so because it makes so much sense based on what I'd learned classically in terms of the organs, organ specific remedies, then when I met with the Banerjee's and watched what they were doing, it all made perfect sense. Of course, a man who has prostatitis should get um, through, yeah, of course, unless it's hardened, then it's conium. Of course, a woman who's just had a baby is having anxiety and fatigue and lack of well-being, et cetera, et cetera, problems with milk, all of that. Of course, we should be thinking of sepia. I mean, why wouldn't you? If there's anxiety, why wouldn't you think of coffee or, or Ignatia? Of course, you should think like that. So I memorized those. When I was studying for my exams in classical homeopathy, I had to memorize that kind of stuff. I needed to know my organ remedies. So now... In classical, they don't stop there. They say you have to memorize a few of them. You have to know the top, the keynotes, and you have to know the top remedies for each of the organs. But why go to remedy number two on the second level when number one works practically every time? Why not? If it works in 80% of the cases, why would you go any further? Why complicate this? And I think, um, I wonder if it's really true that classical homeopaths are questioning this. Sometimes I wonder if it's just not trolls, you know, against homeopathy, just trying to divide us. Because it is a classical homeopath's dream to have these protocols. It, what it did for my teaching and my practice is uh, astounding. The results went up. The uh, commitment from students went through the roof. People are dying to learn this stuff, and I don't blame them. We should all know this. This should be taught in grammar school. Well, better yet, homeschool, because <laughs> grammar schools. <laughs> so if you're homeschooling mom, use this stuff as your curriculum. Your yeah. kids need to learn this. Yeah, we do. We use it as a, a, a part of our curriculum. Absolutely. I think what you were saying earlier about people not wanting to admit, I think it's more they want to appear that they, <laughs> that they can find that one remedy that's going to cover it all. Oh my gosh, it's a dangling carrot. Let me also say one remedy can do a lot of good work. There's no doubt about it if you can get it and get it right. But my classes in Toronto were filled 300 some in one class it was 350 people in that class were filled with people who were studying homeopathy. They had to be a homeopath in order to join the group. The, the classes. They had to be in for, for five years. They had to have been in full-time practice. Their room was filled with homeopaths looking for their one gem, the one remedy that suited them. I know that because I talked to them all. I want to find my, my one constitutional. Everybody wants to find that because it's like a magic bullet or it's purported to be. And there are people who have been 100% cured by one remedy. There's no doubt about it. But it's very difficult to find and very difficult to study to get to that point. I always tell people, if you want to become a classical homeopath, roll up your sleeves, expect to spend the next 10 years studying and, um, and, and about $100,000 worth of studying. It's very expensive to do this. Mm -hmm. I guess another part of this too, what was part of my journey towards wanting to learn protocols and learning a simpler method, based on classical, by the way. This is all based on classical. It's just classicals who have been using it so many times that after a while, some things started to become clear. Patterns started to develop. 
it was clear that chelidonium is the remedy that's very specific for the for the liver. Doesn't mean it can't be nux vomica. Doesn't mean it can't be lycopodium. But chelidonium is a really good first choice. So it became clearer to me when I was a tutor for an international homeopathic school. And this school had been around for decades. And I was a tutor. And so I would get these young women, almost always women. I never saw men coming through. And the reason for that is because most of these young women were mothers. And they came to homeopathy because they wanted to learn how to treat, okay, right back again, otitis, media, conjunctivitis, strep throat, eczema, urinary tract infections, shin splints for their husbands, and vomiting after eating too much. That's what they wanted to know. But instead, what this curriculum was teaching them was the history of homeopathy and theory, how to use a repertory, how to use a materia medica. Not bad information, excellent information if you're going to become a homeopath. So what I found was that the homeopathy schools in this country were all, and, and in England, it said every place that I could find, and Greece, and, and Spain, and Italy, et cetera, et cetera, were all geared towards training homeopaths. No one was teaching families how to use this. So the, these women would come into the school and the attrition rate was ridiculous. I never took a single student from the time they started the class all the way through the full three years. I never took them to the end because they quit. What a shame. They lost out on such an opportunity because yes, it's interesting, the history. Yes, of course, we should have the, the theory. Yes, we should know how to repertorize if you're going to become a homeopath or you really want to take this on as a grand hobby in your life at a later date. But the most important thing that these women came with was how do I treat my family? And that's when it became very clear to me that there was one aspect of this of homeopathy that was not being addressed. And that was, how do you teach families how to treat themselves? How do you do that? And so when I learned that the Banerjee's were using protocols, and my, by the time I learned this, my children were old enough that I felt as though I could go to India. I, was, I knew that I had to go to India in order to really get this down to a science. I thought about Greece and studying with George Fathoukas, who was classical. I thought about studying in Italy with uh, Massimo Mangilavore, and I thought about going to all places. There are many places all over the world where you can study homeopathy, but I wanted to learn how the Indians were using it because I knew that they had such a huge population and they had to take cases very quickly. And the only way to take cases quickly was to not commit 100% to classical uh, and constitutional, but rather to use uh, a distilled version of it. So by the time I went to uh, India, to Calcutta, to work with the uh, Prasanta Banerjee Homeopathic Research Foundation, my children were grown. And when I watched and observed them, as each doctor was taking a case, they would take a case for, it would take 15 minutes. Sometimes it would take only five minutes because the protocols were very clear. And they saw 100 patients per day, each doctor. Let me repeat that. Each doctor saw 100 patients per day. I don't know a single classical homeopath who even has that many people interested in seeing that homeopath. <laughs> First of all, because you got to have results in order for people to bang down your doors. Okay. Right. And you got, and these people weren't just banging down the doors. They were lining up on the streets. The line went all the way, not around the block, but clear down the road. And they would sleep overnight to get into this place because it had such a reputation. So each doctor, and there were 12 senior doctors, were seeing 100 patients per day. Now, they also had um, assistants. And the assistant would take the case first and look at the chart 
and look at the x-rays and read the MRIs and um, take the family history and get all of the information instead of senior homeopaths doing that. These were the junior doctors, the junior homeopaths. By the way, these people are all MDs and use only homeopathy. And so that case would be fully taken. That junior doctor would walk into the room, into the office, have the patient sit down. The junior doctor would sit next to me. I would be sitting next to Pratip Banerjee or Prasanta Banerjee. And in some cases, sometimes I'd work with other senior doctors. And the case would be shown to the senior doctor. He or she would glance over, take a real good look at it. The junior doctor would point out aspects of the case that needed to be pointed out. The senior doctor would palpate on the examining table if need be, hold up the x-rays, looking at it in the x-ray lamp, and dictate to the junior doctor exactly what needed to be used. After you've seen, you're seeing a hundred of these a day, six days a week, that's a lot of patients you've been seeing for your entire career. After a while, this is not that complex. There are patterns that are developed that are clear. And this is all put into their database, right? Well, put into their, in a file system. And the whole back building is all files. Boxes and boxes and boxes. It's all it is. It's a huge building. All it is is files. And um, they've been collecting these files for, they've been doing this for 150 years. Did you hear what I said? 150 years of using these protocols with all of these doctors doing this. Now, it's not exactly 12 doctors over the full 150 years. It might have been only two doctors 100 years ago, but it's the same protocols. And they do evolve a little bit here and there as things change in humanity, in the human family. But they have used these protocols basically for 150 years. And as they've had these 12 doctors doing this, at the end of the day, there have been 1,200 people who have tramped through this clinic. And what they put into the data center, which is on the second floor, and there are six computers up there with junior doctors sitting in front of them, inputting the kidney cases, and, and the cancer cases, mostly. Now, they also take other cases as well, cardiac, and they, and they put them in the data. But it's mostly those particular cases. Because to be honest, after a while, how many, how many times can you say, you know, fatty liver chelidonium? <laughs> you don't I mean, even... you know, if you're seeing 100 patients a day, you see 10 of those. Wow. And of course, they're coming back. They come back in six to eight weeks, sometimes four weeks. Sometimes they, they come back and just ask questions of the junior doctor. So when people say they don't get results, what? <laughs> it's all written down. It's all, it's all registered. You know, the president of India has given them awards. That, you know, I met the two princes of uh, Bhutan who came into the office. Royalty come in to see these doctors. All of the royalty of India and the royalty of the surrounding countries. This is not just some smurfy little clinic. These are well-known. They have a bridge named after them. These mm. are, they, have, they have statues named in the city around the work that they're doing. These people are highly revered. This is not just some classical homeopath that thought he'd put a, a sign up in front of his office. So mm -hmm. when people criticize this, it's, I almost don't want to respond because it's, it's practically laughable. But I don't mean to be rude, on the other hand. You know, um, the Banerjee's are the doctor to the first lady of India and the, and the, and the president of India. Well, of course, because they're the best. And they, have, <laughs> and they, and they, and they get results. 
So after I've been there, and I've been there eight times, and each time I go, I generally go for six to seven weeks, and all I do is I sit. I do it all by hand. I have a, a notebook, and there's a mall next door to them, and I go there, and I buy another notebook every couple of days and more pens, and all I do is write. I don't even ask questions. I just write. I just record and record every case. Every single case I see, I record. So I write down the uh, condition, the prescription, the drugs, they, that the conventional drugs that they might be on, and many of them are on regular drugs. Many of them are. But they come here because the drugs aren't acting or aren't helping. Some of them come on stretchers. Some of them come in ambulances. And we get out of our seats in our office, and we walk around to the back where the ambulance is, and we all stand around, and we observe as Dr. Prasanta or Pratip Banerjee takes the case as the person is laying there in the ambulance. Wow. People are brought in on, on homemade stretchers made from bamboo and rags that they wrap around. They carry their loved ones in on their backs. Grandsons carry the grandmother in in a sling that they've fashioned out of fabric. They come in on crutches. They come in half, half alive, but they come in. And meanwhile, when I'm going out for lunch, I leave the building. I go with one of the doctors who I've become very close friends with, and we leave the building. She has to hold my hand to pull me through because the, the swarm of people trying to get into this clinic is astounding. Hmm. So they see 7,200 patients per week. So for when someone says that it suppresses, really? Show me the evidence. Let me see the double-blind study. Let me see the evidence. Let's see it. Show me how they could be suppressing when, when they're curing cancer, they're curing brain cancer. They've been invited to go to um, Anderson Cancer Institute and Roswell Cancer Institute and the NIH and institutions all over Europe. They are invited because they have the research and they have the PowerPoint presentations and they are teaching doctors how to use this. Right. And those so, doctors I've read are actually starting to use those. Homemade- they are. They do. Oh. Yes, they do. They do. You can't argue with success. Well, that's right. And I want to replace the idea that dogma is number one. No, results are number one. Mm -hmm. I don't care what dogma says. If I see results, I'm going to accept it. Because I was trained that the dogma is you don't repeat the medicine more than a couple of days. You don't don't use twice a day for for six to eight weeks. You don't do that. You don't use more than one remedy, except that I got to tell you, (laughs) it works. Mm -hmm. So why would I deny it? Dr. Samuel Hahnemann did not see 100 patients per day. He was brilliant. He had it all understood. He's the father of homeopathy. There's no doubt that he was clearly onto something, that he was a genius. But it's not until we put this into practice where a doctor can see 100 patients per day. And beside him in the next several rooms are 11 other doctors doing the same thing. So in the end, there are 1,200 patients that are being seen per day. Dr. Hahnemann didn't have that kind of experience. He was brilliant. He was right. He was, but he did not have clinical experience like this. And do you think he would say, oh no, don't learn anything new? <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. He would never have said that. No. It's very unscientific to be closed-minded. And most of those people, like you said, they do use the protocols. They just aren't acknowledging it because who doesn't use Arnica for an injury or APIS for an allergic reaction? Yes, that's right. 
It's absolutely so. And we don't mean just that that's just for an acute or that's just an injury because there can be a head injury that was 20 years old that's still causing trouble. And if you use Arnica now, 20 years later, or Cupra Metallicum or Secuta Varosa or et cetera, if you're, if you, you have to know those medicines and you use the one that is the most frequently used by the Banerjee's and it's, you're golden. They don't use Arnica for head injuries. They use Cupra Metallicum every time. So to summarize it all up, Joette, what would you like to say to those people who speak against practical protocols? Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Just shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) When you do, come back and we'll discuss it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You feel better now? (laughs) Yes, I feel much better. Okay, so let me, you, so I guess you're looking for, for um, advice. that's more kind than than telling somebody where to go. Okay. Then I will will give you good advice. If somebody says it works, why would you not want to try it? Just give it a try. It's not going to do any harm. Oh, but they think it's going to do harm. So, okay. If you think it's going to do harm, then don't do it. Oh my gosh. Some people, you just can't get through to some people. So, (laughs) so all right, that's fine. We won't get through to you. Okay. You just stay in your classical world. (laughs) Well, I think it's been good for our listeners to hear about your background and to know that you've been there. You've done that. As we've talked over the years, Joette, every time I come to you and I say, Joette, this is what I've learned. You said, oh, yes. Yes, I've been there and I've done that. But let's go back to what is really what really works. (laughs) So I I think a lot of our listeners are there where they're, they're learning, they're finding out new things and, and then they question, okay, well, what about this instead of those practical protocols? As we come to you, you're going to say, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. (laughs) There's nothing, you know, I mean, there's There's nothing I haven't seen because I've been doing this for so long. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been working a long time and I've been studying the homeopathy for 30 years. And before that I studied, you know, somewhat a little bit of naturopathy, not as again, not in a naturopathic school, but I used to study that. I I read it incessantly. And the reason I read it incessantly, the reason anyone studies these things incessantly are generally twofold. One is that they're suffering or someone in their family is suffering and they need to find an answer. And that's where I was. I needed to find an answer. And so I studied and read and read and studied. And my mother read along with me and she studied. She'd read one book. I would read another book. We'd go on to the next. And in those days, there was no internet. So we would go to health food stores and garage sales even and try to find books that that were no longer in print and go to bookstores that had a a good medical section. And we read because I was very, very, very sick for a long time. And so I, I know all about um, other methods, blue, green algae, and now it's colostrum and now it's this and now it's that. Yeah, that's all good. Yeah. Okay. And vinegar, of course we use those things. Of course we employ those things, but if you want results, it's homeopathy. That's what it boils down to. And the practical protocols. And the protocol that distills it to a much simpler method. I think we've come a long way from the question of why did you change your name <laughs> to practical? Oh, from Joanne Calabrese on my website to practical homeopathy. Okay, well, is I supposed to just answer that and say, oh, because <laughs> it's easier to spell or something? <laughs> that was the longest question ever. <laughs> I try to teach folks because I believe this is so important that people have this skill, 
that you need to establish what's really important in your life. And once you've established the priorities, when people say, I don't have the time to learn, okay, well, maybe it's just not important enough because, that, because you can always find a way to do it if it's truly important. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to establish what's important, establish your day, start your day with studying. Um, if you are a prayerful, prayerful person, then you should start with your prayers. And if you're Catholic, your rosary, if you're Protestant, your Bible, you start your day on good firmament and then establish what you're going to get done that day and learn one way to cure one person in your life. Learn how to figure out why your dog is sick. How can I, how can I fix my dog with diarrhea? What are the protocols for diarrhea? How does that present in my dog? And figure out where to get the remedies and buy them and start utilizing this. And there's not an awful lot to figure out. I, I hand it out to people on my blog. I give you the name of the, the condition. I give you the name of the homeopathic medicine, the potency, the frequency. And then I give you a link to Boron or Amazon or else you can find it. And I don't get paid for that, those links, by the way. I want people to know that I do not get kickbacks because then it wouldn't be a free blog. I don't make an income on this. So the, the blog is free because I want it to be free because I think it's important that we give back and that we hand this out. And that's what I hope others will do. When you learn how valuable homeopathy is, I hope that you will turn other people on to this method of medicine and, and my blog that's free so that this can get around to many, many, many families. You just listened to a podcast from practicalhomeopathy.com, where nationally certified homeopath, public speaker, and author Joette Calabrese shares her passion for helping families stay strong through homeopathy and nutrient-dense nutrition. Joette's podcasts are available on iTunes, Google Play, Blueberry, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Joette Calabrese. To learn more and find out if homeopathy is a good fit for your health strategy, visit practicalhomeopathy.com.